0: I am an alcoholic, and my name is Bob. When I became a drunk, I gave up my anonymity. There's no sense taking it back now. I was a very, very shy young man. I was always a loser, and I never could fit in anywhere as a boy. I was an only child. I was a coward. I was small. I was insignificant. I didn't have the right mother and father, the right education, or the right anything. My mama was my savior. She fought most of my battles for me. I could run home and the other kids would stop at the door because they were afraid of my mama. At 15 years old, my mama died and till that moment in time, I had never seen a human being take a drink of alcohol. That seems impossible, but it was true. My daddy had six brothers and sisters. My mama had 10. None of those drank and none of their families or children drank. Not one. I had heard rumors that my grandfather hid what they called near beer. He lived in a county in Maine that didn't have uh, alcohol, but they had what they called near beer. I heard that he hid it in the barn, but I never saw it. And I never saw him drink. And I was—I lived the whole summer with him, and I lived many years on and off there. So I didn't know what alcohol was. Two days after my mama died, my daddy started drinking. I then learned that he was an alcoholic, that he had a serious drinking problem and promised my mother that he would not drink if she would marry him and he did not till the day she died. He kept his promise. That was about 16 years they were married. My daddy started drinking and in a few days we had no home. It didn't take him long to give up the home we had and I was on the street. I quit school and went to work. while i was a young man what saved my life was reading i read a lot i still read a lot and i fantasized that i was the person i was reading about whatever it might have been and that helped me that was the solution to my loneliness and my problem and my being unique and being different than everyone else because i could be that successful person in the book and it helped me a great deal when i was out working with other people uh, I was successful at the jobs that I did because I kept getting promoted. At 16, I was the general superintendent of a jewelry factory, and I had 400 people working for me. But yet it wasn't enough for me. I was never successful. Uh, one time later in my career, I was the supervisor of the first floor of a department store in a major city, and I had several hundred people working for me. And if I met you in a bar, I'd tell you I was a doctor or a lawyer because I was ashamed of what I was doing. You see, in my mind, I never accomplished anything. I never was anything. I never was successful. And so I had to lie. I had to fantasize. At 15 years old, when I went to work, I naturally worked with people older than me, and I started drinking with them after work. Stop off for a couple of drinks at a bar, uh, drinking at a party. I was invited to parties with older people, and, and so I started drinking, and I didn't have a problem. In fact, now I had a solution to my problem. I was no longer bad-looking at all. I was pretty good-looking. I could talk to the girls, and I could dance, and I could go to the parties, and I could tell jokes, and I fit in everywhere then. I had no problem. So you see, that was a solution to my problem. It was not a problem. It wasn't a problem for many, many years. I drank very successfully for many, many years. I got drunk, and I fell down a lot, and I made a fool out of myself many times, but it didn't matter because I was somebody. I married a lovely gal, and we had four children, and uh, I started my own business and failed at it, and went to work for someone else, and again, no matter where I worked, I I seemed to do a good job for them. And uh, I can remember being in Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, then the drink started to catch up with me for some reason. I was a workaholic also. I don't believe there was anything like a pure alcoholic with no other problems. I had many other problems, but I worked at that time from about 5.30 in the morning until uh, about 11 at night, five days a week, and I worked a half a day on Saturday. I didn't actually work physically. I was uh, uh, supervised other people, but I was there, and I drank afterwards, and I started experiencing small periods of time left out of my life that I didn't know about, and I didn't learn until later years in Alcoholics Anonymous, you call these blackouts. Uh, I, uh, in 19, about 1957, I was in Illyria, Ohio. I worked in a bank. I was a head teller of a, of a savings and loan, really. And, you know, a lot of things happened to us in our lives. And at the time, they're disasters. And now I can look back at some of those things, and they were the best things that ever happened to me. For instance, uh. A short time after that, my wife and I moved into the, what was to be our first home, our own home, instead of apartments or rented. We were going to buy this home. We moved in uh, uh, like on a Friday and Saturday. And uh, Sunday morning at 5 o'clock, that home burned to the ground. And I stood outside of the home, stitch stock, naked. I had gotten my children out of the house. I had gotten my wife out of the house. I had gotten my father out of the house. And I stood in and watched the house burn. The important things were outside. And my belongings burnt up. And that was a terrible thing to happen to me. It took us many years to recover mentally from that. That's the best thing that ever happened in my life. Because everything I own now is junk. Nothing owns me. I don't have to carry around my stuff. I don't have to lock my doors. I don't have to guard anything I have. And if I lose it and you steal my stuff, I'll go get new and you can keep my old stuff. If you steal my money, I'll just go make some more. That's all. It's no big deal. That helped me before I even started. You see, things were worked in, but it was no help at that time. Uh, about this time, uh, this huge blackout I had, I was in O'Leary, Ohio, and I had a toothache, and naturally, uh, an alcoholic to cure a toothache will go to the dentist, but before he goes to the dentist, he'll stop off for a drink or two or three or six. And that's what I did, and I never got to the dentist. Now, I'm in Ohio, quite close to Cleveland, and this is Friday evening. And uh, the next thing I know, it's Monday morning. I'm sitting in a restaurant, well-dressed, all my identification, my wallet my pocket. I have uh, money in my pocket. I have my car keys and a hotel key in my pocket, and I don't know where I'm at. And when I find out, I'm in Chicago. How I got from malaria to there, I don't know. What I was doing there, I don't know. I was scared. Even though I wasn't hurt or anything, I was scared. I called my wife. and. Told her where I was and didn't know how I got there, and she believed me for once in my life. And uh, I was uh, lied most of the time, but that time I didn't lie. I went home and we asked for help. Local minister came and he might have gave me some words, but he didn't give me any help. Uh, the people I worked for fired me on the spot. No help. No. No one knew there was such a thing as Alcoholics Anonymous. I guess it must have been a secret organization. In fact, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous in New York City, we fought tooth and nail to get billboards up and car cards up and stuff like that, and they're up. People know where we're at now. Uh, I, uh, because I didn't get any help, I continued along my way. I didn't know what it was. I got another job. And when, in those days, when I lost a job, I just got a better one, that's all. You couldn't defeat me, you know. And uh, the last job I had, I was a foreman on the piers in New York City. You don't get a job on the piers in New York City unless you know somebody, really know somebody, and pay some big money to get it. And I didn't know anybody, didn't pay any money, but I got the job. And I was foreman on one of the piers. And I'd stop off to drink, and I'd come home four hours later, five hours later, a day later, blackout or no blackout, money or no money. My wife lived in, uh, or we both lived, she lived there seven days a week, 24 hours a day, I was there when I wanted to get something to eat or go to bed. She lived in a six-floor walk-up, we called it. It was six floors, no elevator. You walked those floors. And if you think about a physical fitness program, I'd send you there and give you one of those apartments, because we had four children. And going up those stairs with a child in each arm and a shopping bag hanging on each hand is enough physical fitness for anybody, believe me. We had no hot water, just cold water. It was a cold water flat, they called it. It was holes in the wall that big. And we weren't worried because the rats were that big they couldn't get out the holes. We had a bathtub. We were very fortunate we had a bathtub. Most people in the building didn't have a bathtub. If you walked in, it was in the kitchen now. It wasn't, we didn't have a bathroom. We had a little commode and it was, had a wall around it. But the bathtub was in the kitchen and it had a, a metal counter over it about as big as this thing. And when you wanted to give the kids a bath or take a bath, you slid that counter off and got in and took your bath in the cold water unless you heat the pot on the stove. Now, I'm making those. We're talking about in the early 60s. I'm making over $200 a week. (laughs) And I couldn't afford to pay the rent. It was $30 a month. You see, an alcoholic has a problem up here with finances. There isn't any way in the world for me, a drinking alcoholic, to get $30 out of $200 and come up with anything left. There's no... It doesn't work that way. There's not enough... In that 200 to get the 330 out, and that was one of my problems. I never could figure mathematics. I'd sit in the bar and drink up the whole 200, and naturally, I didn't have the 30 when I got home. I was right; there was no rent money in that, and my kids did without clothes. My family did without food and shoes and so forth. Uh, Early in 1964, my wife had it, and she left me. Again, she had gone for help to many places, and there wasn't any help available. At least no one told her where to go. And uh, I told her where to go many times, but it wasn't to get help. (laughs) Anyway, she left me and went off into the sunset. And I immediately quit my job. I didn't even go back for my last pay. It's still sitting there, I guess. And I went to live uh, on a street called the Bowery in New York City. That's our skid row there. Uh East Ninth Street in Washington, East Ninth Street in Cleveland, uh, the STEM, whatever you want to call it. I went there because I could be myself. And you talk about freedom. You know, there's a song in the 60s, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. And I had nothing left to lose, and I was free. I could do what I wanted to do now. I could be what I wanted to be now. I could drink the way I wanted to drink and spend my own money the way I wanted to. And I had no bosses and nobody owned me. And I was dirty, and I was filthy, and I was drunk. And I stole and I was a liar. And I could work a day at a time. Fortunately, at one point in my career, I was the manager or assistant manager of a manpower office. That's a day labor agency. And our office was a training office. And the people who would buy franchises or become managers would come to our office and learn the business and go on somewhere else. Luckily, my skid row was in New York City, and the manager of the manpower office I had trained. So I always had a job when I went down there, as long as I didn't, wasn't too drunk. So I could work a day at a time, and I could then spend that money the way I wanted to. And most of the time, in the first year, I used my head. I would go to a, what we call a flop house. It was about half as big as this room, and had 80 or 90 beds in it. And you rented a bed for the night. So I'd go there after work, or 5.30 or 6 o'clock, and pay in, if you call it paying in, and get a ticket, like you got here for the raffle. And I'd pay 65 or $0.70 for that ticket, and that allowed me to have a bed for the night. And so I'd sleep in that bed and then get up in the morning, and you had to leave by 7. And then they swept everybody out and cleaned up the place and sold tickets for the next night. And so I'd pay my way in and get a place to sleep. Then I could go out on the street and drink, get something to eat and drink up the rest of my money and start off the next day, and it was okay. I was very contented to do this. No aspirations, nothing. No problems. I didn't have a problem. Because if you live on that street you better drink you're not going to live there and stay sane more than five minutes unless you drink so drinking never was a problem it was always a solution in my life always always and i i did this for maybe a year and then i because of the way i was treating myself the amount i was drinking and the types of drink i was drinking a lot of wine a lot of stuff with sugar in it a lot of stuff that was bad for me and I became weak, and I couldn't work every day, and I'd be sickly, and uh, I just couldn't perform the way I used to. So I couldn't, if I didn't have the money that day, I couldn't pay in. Well, then I'd have to sleep on the street that night. Well, that becomes a habit, because then when you do get eight or nine dollars, you think, well, I slept on the street last night, why should I give those bums 70 cents? 65 cents was a bottle of port wine or muscatel, whichever you wanted. I think it came out of the same barrel, the fellow in the that sold it to us, uh, had a bar, and the caps weren't even sealed. Those bars just set along the back of the thing. And uh, so that's the kind of stuff we drank because it was cheap and we could get a lot of it. And we tried not to get drunk. The people called us mochas. We tried to live in a state of uh, just a trance, not falling down, but not being able to see the world either. And it worked for quite a while. Little by little, my body wore down and my mind wore down, and I, again, not being able to work steady, I decided I'd get off of this skid row. And I didn't, I have a problem now with drinking. I never had a problem, you gave me the problem with drinking, alcohol smellers did. I didn't have one until I got here. And so I decided that I would do something my grandfather and grandfather, grandmother told me, and my mom and dad had told me that if you do the American way, if you work and earn your money and pay your bills and save whatever money you have left, you'll succeed in America. And so I tried to do that on Skid Row. It was... I was very ill and sick and tired and... I went into a mission one night. They cleaned me up a little bit and gave me some clean clothes and cough there and I went to the manpower office the next day and they gave me a job. And I was going to... First thing I was going to do was to pay my way in that night and get a place to sleep and then get a meal. And I heard a song by Johnny Cash called A Half Pound of Ground Round. And another one of his favorite songs is Sunday Morning, Coming Down. I lived Sunday morning coming down with tears in my eyes for three years. Every Sunday morning I'd walk. There wasn't any place to drink. You couldn't get a drink. There was a man on the street with a bag but you had to pay double and we, we couldn't afford that. And I'd walk around and see people going to church with little children and I'd see people going in and out of playgrounds with children, and I just cry and feel sorry for myself. You know, most people that are sad aren't sad for their children or their wife. They're sad for themselves. I know what self-pity is, and I know what it does to a person. It's demoralizing. It's worse than the alcohol. When I got sober, if I had self-pity, I would just as well have been drunk. It would have been easier. I would have been sedated. The self-pity is destructive, and it hurt me many, many times in my sobriety. So I decided to go to this place and go to work, and they gave me a job, and the job was going over to New Jersey on a truck, get on a ferry boat, go over the river, unload a carload of butter. Now, butter is packaged in boxes about 36 inches square, one solid chunk of butter, and they weigh around 100 pounds. Some of them are less or some of them more because they can't accurately measure the amount of fat in that much butter. So The more fat, the the more the butter weighs. But it runs between 96 and 110 pounds, and I was about 110 pounds. And I unload that carload of butter, a boxcar, into a truck, and I did. I unloaded three truckloads of that that day, and it took me from about 6.30, 7 o'clock that morning till about 9 o'clock that night. And all I could think of all day was that there was a restaurant right next door to the Manpower office that had a half pound of ground round with mashed potatoes and gravy, green beans, a slice of apple pie, and a big glass of milk for a very reasonable price. I had no money and nothing to eat. I worked all day with nothing to eat. When the truck would go back to New York, I'd lay down under the boxcar and sleep. And I had in my mind I was doing what my folks told me to do, and I was going to work my way out of this. Don't try it. It doesn't work. I'll tell you that now. I uh, got to the manpower office just as they were locking the door. And because the man knew me, he opened the door again and paid me. And I had about $16 for that day's work. They only paid a buck an hour in those days. I got the money and uh, I got the check and went next door to the restaurant and ordered my half pound of ground round with mashed potatoes and green beans, a slice of apple pie, and a big glass of milk. And the man said, what's that in your hand? I said, that's my manpower check. He said, well, we won't cash it. Go next door and cash it. I said, look, it's guaranteed, and it is. If you ever see a manpower check, give the man money. Even if it's phony, they'll pay you for it. Because they want their people to be able to cash those checks, and they're guaranteed anywhere in the world. He wouldn't cash the check. He said, go next door. The next door was a bar, and I didn't want to drink. I didn't know drinking was a problem, but I didn't want to spend any money. So I said, okay. So I did something I do now. I went next door into a bar. I'd walk into a bar now. And the bartender says, if you buy two drinks for a quarter, we'll cash your check. I'd do that today. I'd still do it. If I needed to cash a check, I'd give him a quarter for two drinks and cash it. And then I did something I wouldn't do. I drank one of the beers. I could just leave him sitting there today and walk out and let some other slab have him, you know. I couldn't do it then. I mean, you couldn't give away alcohol. So I drank one of the beers. And then I started drinking the second beer. And I drank about half of it and... I said, throw this horse what you call it out and give me something to drink. I want a Jack Daniels and a bottle of Valentine Ale with the three X's on it. And the sad part of this is that I didn't have enough money drinking that kind of stuff. The Jack Daniels was, at those days was cheap. It was only a buck a shot. And the beer was 60 cents a bottle. So that's a buck 60 a throw. I didn't have enough money to really get drunk. About three and a half hours later, I looked down and I had some coins on the bar, some pennies and nickels and things on the bar. And I started to cry. Because I did what my mom and daddy told me to do. I went to work, and I earned my money, and I worked all day hard for it. And now I don't have a place to sleep or anything to eat and nowhere to go. And I went back out on Skid Row and stayed another six months. So I couldn't work my way out of it. I couldn't think my way out of it. Nothing I could do. I wound up very, very sick, not being able to work. The last six months on Skid Row, believe it or not, I did not take my pants off to go to the bathroom. I just went in them. I just went where I stood. Even the bums didn't want me around. My hair grew till it was out like hair, and I wasn't a hippie. It was just wild hair, that's all. But I had bugs in my hair, bugs under my arms, bugs in my privates, and they itched and burned. And I had sores all over my body that wouldn't heal. And I wasn't heavy, but my body, my legs swelled up about so big. I had what they call edema. This is alcoholism at its worst. And I was totally insane. I was gone. When I walked down the street, friends who were dead were walking with me. There were bands playing in the street. There was people carrying flags. There was, my mother was dead 20 years. She called me from an upstairs window. She was going to throw me down money. That's where my brain was. That's what I was thinking about. And I decided the only thing I could do, I had a lucid moment and I needed a solution and I needed it fast. I had to get off that street. And so I decided I could walk in front of a truck, a big truck, and when that truck ran over me, I'd be off the street. And so I stood on the curb and a big truck came by and I closed my eyes and nothing happened. A coward. I couldn't do it. Or a brave man, one of the two, I don't know which. I tried that two or three times and the trucks went by. In New York they have these huge trucks that they are so heavy and so big they're only allowed on one street. They come from the ships with big huge rolls of paper on them to go up to the New York Times. And these trucks waste, they're so heavy they just crush you flat. And I thought if I get under one of them, it won't hurt me. I'll die. And I couldn't, I couldn't do it. So then I walked around the block and a couple of guys across the street saw me and I guess they took pity on me and called me over to have a drink. And I couldn't cross the street. I was afraid now. I had fear. And so I walked around that block again and I started to cry because now how could I ever go anywhere? I was stuck on one block in New York City and what would I go and where would I do? And God, in his infinite wisdom, 100 years before that, had put a mission on that block. And that day, that very day, a man took over that mission who was a Baptist minister who was 16 years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. That was the day I picked to go on that mission. Very coincidental, isn't it? This power greater than ourselves that I care to call God knows exactly what he's doing with me and with you. You're exactly where you should be. I was in there three days. Two days I had to stay on the floor because I couldn't go in into bed or anything. And they had taken me and held me and washed me and put powder on me to kill the bugs and gave me some clean clothes and taken me across the street to a, a Barbara College and got me a haircut. And I'd had, maybe had a meal or two in, in, in three days. And... Felt a little better. I uh, saw some fellows with a uh, little book, you guys call it a meeting book. They have the same thing there. Theirs has the right addresses and the right times in it, though, (laughs) most of the time. Anyway, uh, I had this meeting, looked at these guys, and I said, you guys go into a meeting? And they said, yeah. I said, what kind of a meeting is it? They said it's, I, no, I said, is it a church meeting? They said, yes, it's in a church, but it's not always in a church. Sometimes it's in a club. And I, I said, what meeting? They said, a, a. I said, what's that? And they said, it's Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, what's that? They said, it's for alcoholics. I said, well, I'm not one, and I wasn't one. You see, I was sober three days. I don't have to come to Alcoholics Anonymous to learn to stop drinking. In fact, you didn't teach me to stop drinking. We don't teach very many people to stop drinking here. Most of them stop when they walk in the door. Not, didn't never used to be that way. I've been to meetings with 50 people and 40 of them were drunk. But you don't see drunks at meetings much anymore. Like we have drying out places and treatment centers and that's good. I spent uh, four or five years babysitting drunks, throwing up and trying to get them sober and they'd be out the next day again. So I'm glad the treatment centers took that part of it over. But, uh, so I wasn't an alcoholic because I had stopped drinking. An alcoholic is a person who can't stop drinking. That was my philosophy, and I had stopped for three days. Also, I wasn't drunk very much, because to me, a drunk is a person who lays on the street and cannot move his eyeballs even, and I wasn't in that shape too many times, so I wasn't a drunk either, so I didn't go to AA. So the next day, it's a long story, I won't tell it to you, the next day, these guys conned me into going to AA meeting by offering me five bucks to do a chore, and when I finished the chore, they took me left me off at the meeting, And left the five bucks with somebody else in that meeting. And I had to go to the meeting together. So I went to an AA meeting, and there was about this many people in the meeting. It's a group called the Manhattan Group in New York City. And I came in, and every chair was filled in the place, except one. And Frank, the guy that had the money, he had ten five five of it was mine, sat down. Now, Frank sat about in the middle of the place there. And I couldn't sit behind him, even if there had been a chair. I mean, I couldn't sit in front of him, even if there had been a chair, because he might sneak out with the money. He was a con just like me. So I had to sit in front of him to watch him, and the only chair was a pew over here, and I sat on it. And the lady that talked said, Third Avenue and Thirty Third Street in Boyd's and Bees. She had what some people mistakenly call a Jersey accent. It is not. It's a Brooklynese accent. Jersey people don't talk that way. Ah, uh, I laughed. I had not laughed in so long. See, I'm four days sober now. In fact, I date my sobriety from that day. I remember that day. The other three days were kind of foggy. So my sobriety is from the day that I went to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. It is my AA birthday. It's not the day I got sober in some treatment center. Don't even count that one, baby. Count the day you got here. That's my AA birthday. And I I can afford to lose three days. I still got them but I can afford to count my birthday anytime beyond and I'm getting off the track anyway forget some of the remarks I make because I'm talking for myself I'm not talking for Alcoholics Anonymous and anything I say is my own opinion not theirs and each one of us have our own and each one of us are peculiar in a certain way and if you'll accept us with our peculiarities and accept the good we have and the bad we have maybe we'll get along anyway I sat in that pew and I laughed and laughed and laughed and It came to me that I was just making a fool out of myself in front of these people. And I started to cry. And I cried tears. And when I was laughing, the people were laughing with me. And when I cried, everything was silent. And the meeting ended, and I didn't know that. The meeting ended early because this horse was what you call it, was balling up here. And they wanted to get to me. And a bunch of men came around me. Uh, we had a ruling then, and I go by it most of the time now, the men were the men and the women were the women. I have only sponsored one gallon in Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's probably the last I'm going to do. I'm having a hell of a time with her. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> she's still sober. And she's in New Mexico now. Maybe she's doing good. I, guess. I hope so. Anyway, uh, at the end of the meeting a a few of these men gave me a business card or or a piece of paper with a telephone number on it and they said uh call me please call me i'll help you if you want to call me and okay okay so there was a van waiting to take us back uh, and i got into the van and i threw these things down on the gutter and i went back to the mission because i'm close to the five dollars and the next morning i got my five dollars and i headed out of that mission I was going to get a 65-cent bottle of port wine, and you guys cheated me out of that. I never got it. Thank God. I went to the door, and there was a man at the door, and he said, Remember me? My name is Marty. And I said, Yes, and I didn't remember him. I lied a lot because I didn't want you to think I didn't know. Now I'll tell a person I don't know his name and ask him again, but I didn't dare then. He said, You remember me? And I said, Yes. He said, I gave you my card and asked you to call me. You didn't, so I came down to find out what's going on. Where are you going? I said, oh, I'm going for coffee. Two lies in two minutes. The thing I didn't know then was, and I know it now, you ain't going to lie to none of us. We know exactly what you're going and where you're doing and what's going on in your life. You're lying to yourself. Might as well tell us the truth and get it out and then leave it where it is and go on with your life. It's that easy, you know. The truth will out. Marty says, come on, let's go have breakfast. I said, okay. He took me uptown New York to a very fancy restaurant, and there were gals there with meat coats on the floor and people eating and this was a kind of a restaurant where you don't go to eat you go to be seen or to see there were movie stars and things there and different kinds of people and uh, when they serve you a meal they give you uh if you want a hamburger it's about that big around and three peas on the plate and the people don't eat they just push the food around on the plate what they do you know (laughs) you know they want nine dollars for a hamburger or something oh boy He's going to buy me breakfast. no, go ahead, eat, eat. He said, I know you didn't eat at the mission yet. Eat. I said, all right, I'll eat. So I ordered something, I don't know what, bacon, eggs or something. Very nervous and all, and he was talking about himself. He said, I'm Marty, and uh, gave me his whole name, and he said, "Uh, I work on the stock exchange. I'm an advertising executive, and uh, he said, I've been sober in AA six years, and you look like you need a little help last night, and that's what I'm here for, and we talked, and uh, well, what do you do? I said, well, I've been a banker and I've been this and that, and I talked about what I did. and He talked about what he did. That's all it was to it. He didn't ask me any questions. He didn't ask me what my goals in life was, and, and thank God you know, he never gave me a paper and said, write your life history down here. This is your fourth step. He never did that to me. You know, some of us can't write even. You know, we can still get sober and stay sober. You know. Anyway, he uh, was my friend that day, and I wondered what he wanted. I was a little suspicious, yet. I didn't know if he wanted my body or what. I, I didn't figure he did because I'm just off a of skid row. I'm not really clean yet, you know. In fact, it took me six months to get clean. I felt dirty all that time. I felt, I don't know, I just didn't fit in again. Don't forget, without my solution, no alcohol. I didn't fit in anywhere anymore. I'm 36 years old, and I'm a seven-year-old kid that's an oddball that don't fit in. I'm too little. I'm too insignificant. uh, I don't have enough brains. I don't have enough learning. I don't have anything going for me. And I'm on skid row, and I'm sober. Oh, my God. You know, you can go insane down there like that. But I got one friend. Just one. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do with you. You were leaving that mission with the five bucks, weren't you? I said, how does he know about the five bucks? These guys set this deal up. They conned many of us into coming to one meeting. I know a whole bunch of guys that are sober and it cost them five bucks to get them here. You know, it's, you know. Anyway, because this guy on Skid Row, five bucks is a million dollars, you know. If I'd have got that 65-cent bottle of port wine, I'd have had four thirty-five left. I can buy the world with that with a bottle of wine, you know, and solve all my problems. Anyway, he said, I'll tell you what I'll do with you. I'll make a deal with you. He said, that mission's got a good program. That guy knows what he's doing in there. He's a nice man. There's no religion in that mission anymore, just AA. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do with you. You stay in that mission. I'll come every night at 7:30 to take you to an AA meeting, a different AA meeting. Now he skipped his home group some nights to take me to a different meeting to show me all the groups, to find one that I fit in. And you, I fit in in a skid row group, right? I didn't go to his group, high bottom uptown. Anyway, uh, he took. He said, I'll, I'll, then I'll come in the morning, about 8:30, 9 o'clock, and I'll take you to breakfast and we'll talk about the meeting, okay? Well, I'm no dumbbell. I might have been a jerk. But that was the best deal I'd heard coming down the pike in a number of years. I took it. I went to 90 meetings in 90 days and 90 breakfasts. Boy, I ate in some nice places. I had a hell of a breakfast. I had breakfast with a baked potato one day. Oh, boy. I had breakfast at a Chinese restaurant. I ate breakfast everywhere in New York City. I loved it. I could just look forward to that. I'd stayed sober just for that breakfast. Because I was living in a mission, and, you know, the food wasn't that good, you know. I'd like to share something that happened to me the first day I was in the mission, the first day that I was awake in the mission, the third day, really. They cleaned me up, like I said, and they took me upstairs to the fourth floor. There was two floors we lived on, and two floors, they were, one, the first floor was like a chapel, second floor was offices, third floor was beds, and fourth floor was beds. So they took me to, to the fourth floor, and they gave me a bed. And they said, that's your bed. And it was an army cot, and it had a, a mattress on it, and a white sheets and pillow, and stuff. And they said, well now, we're not going to ask you to do any work or anything. Everybody works around here. But your first day you get off, we start you off that day, just relax here today and do what you want to do and come down to eat, and we'll see you tomorrow morning. And I said, okay. And by the time I got washed up and cleaned up and the barber and all the different stuff, and they make you fill out a form, write your name and stuff, in case you jump out the window, they'll know who died, you know. So after I got doing that, it's like 1 o'clock. I had my lunch, and I went up there, and I laid down in this bed. Now, I learned something, something I learned before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, but I can still use it here. I learned something that kept me alive and killed my best friend. Frank was the guy with the other $5 bill. Frank came with me to the AA meeting. Frank stayed in AA a whole year. Frank stayed sober a whole solid year. Now, this first day, though, going back, what we did different was I laid in that bed, and I, I didn't believe in God. But for some reason, I thanked God for that bed. And I knew I was home free. There were guys on the street who would pour gasoline on us or light a fluid and light us on fire to watch us burn. There were people down there who would stab you and take your shoes off, just to, just to get your shoes to sell them. The street was a vicious, vicious place to be. And I was up in a bed on the third floor, and they couldn't get to me, and I was home free. I was okay. I was alive, and the bed was wonderful. The pillow was soft. The sheet smelled clean. I could touch myself, and I was clean. I had no bugs. My hair was cut, and I was just well off, and I was well satisfied, and I was very, very grateful. Frank wasn't. Frank, you know, the lousy bed sags, and the sheets are rough because they use a lye to to wash them or something, and the pillowcase is scratchy, and the food they just gave us isn't really what they should give us because they take in millions of dollars a year from these people to help alcoholics, and they don't give it to us. One year later, Frank got drunk and died on the street. Gratitude kept this jerk alive, and ingratitude killed that bum. Don't tell me you didn't. I know the difference. I'm going to tell you something right now. I'm not supposed to give you advice. I'm going to give you something. If you ain't great for what you got, you ain't getting no more, baby. I'll tell you that right now. You ain't getting a piece more if you ain't great for what you got. God has what they call a pipeline. You have water pipes in your house. When you put the faucet on, water comes out. As long as you leave the faucet on, water comes out. Now, you turn that faucet on once and no water comes out, you got a problem, don't you? What do you do? Oh, you call a plumber, he rips off the faucet and puts another one on, right? So if God gives me something and I keep it and shut the faucet, God ain't giving me no more. He wants a pipeline. He wants you to give away every damn thing you got. He wants it to run through you. You know what he does? He keeps giving you more and more and more. My wife and I are scared to death to pray for anything. We get it. Just like that. I mean material things. We don't pray for them anymore. We don't even pray for people, for stuff to happen. I was just talking to a friend of mine out there, and he was saying, I just prayed for God's will for this guy. That's all I do now. I'm scared to death to pray and and put a name on it, because God does it. And most of the time when he does it, it isn't really what he wanted for me, but he wants to show me he's there. And he gives me this thing, and then what do I do with it? We prayed for a motorhome on on Wednesday at a prayer meeting in church. And Sunday I drove up at the motorhome. No money, no credit, no job, nothing. I had a brand new... Winnebago Motorhome and I drove up to the church, they didn't believe me. I said, This is the motorhome we prayed for on Wednesday night. They said, No. I said, Yeah, look, knock on it, hit the side of it. It's a motorhome. And we prayed for it and I got it. And I don't have any way of paying for it. They said, Oh, you're crazy. I was leaving town and a dealer gave me that motorhome. And I didn't have no down payment and he he gave me two thousand dollars to put down the dealer did. Oh yeah. Just a few months ago I bought a van. I didn't have any down payment and the dealer gave me the money to make the down payment. Oh, it's God does all this stuff. He's, he's, uh, he's, you know, I have a saying and I've said it over and over, forget about it, think about God. Of course, it's live and let live and all these slogans we we see every day, let go and let God, we see them every day and we forget about them because they're so familiar. But if I say forget about it, think about God, it's different, right? This guy just said something new, he just invented something, maybe I'll try that, you know, AA's been trying it since the, since the Oxford movement, they had that sign. About two weeks ago, I'm a serviceman and I work out of the shop. And a man sits in the shop and he takes phone calls. When he gets a phone call, I rush out and do this work and I make good money doing it. If he's not at the phone, I don't get the jobs. He fell and dislocated his shoulder. So that week I didn't get much of a check. But I watched the store that week for the man that owns it. And that week I went to his house and I just forgot about it. And I said, God, if I don't get any money, it's your problem ain't mine I'm, I'm showing up every day just like I did the week before when I made good money I got bills to pay and my bills were $400 that week if I don't get it I'll, the people that I owe I have to wait that's all that's their problem I don't have many problems I went to that man's house with that week's receipts and he handed an envelope it had $400 in it it worked I'm talking about cold hard cash I'm not talking about feelings Winnebago's and $400 and, and stuff is real stuff so we stopped asking for stuff, though, because we're scared we'll get... Uh, the motorhome, I couldn't afford the gas. It was a buck a gallon. That was way back in when the first gas crunch. I had to sell it quick right away, you know. So I got something I couldn't use. And we've done that many times. We've done that many times. When you ask for something specific, this thing is at work. And this thing got me on skid row. The best thinking I could do got me on skid row with a mess in my pants. I ain't going to believe in no more. This little guy up here can go... Wherever he wants to go, I ain't believing him. I'm going to believe the 27 principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's another thing I have that most people don't have in here. You have 12, maybe. You've seen a sign with 12 of them up there. They don't put promptness up there, do they? That's a principle. Ten steps says promptly. And that don't just mean admit your faults promptly. It says promptness in all your affairs. Every one of those principles means in all your affairs. That's what it says there at the end, don't it? In all our affairs. And I believe this stuff. Maybe I'm wacky. But it seems to make my life so much easier that I can go out and I can not have to make a decision, just go out and do. And it, 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 it all comes to pass. It all works. Now, now, I don't think that a person can sit in a closet and lock the door, and I heard this off one of the tapes, and lock the door and pray for food and God's going to shoot a hot dog through the keyhole. No, I don't think that. No. No, I don't think that. You get out there in the street with your hand out, you might get the hot dog, you know. you got to—I do the footwork. I go through the motions, the best motions I know to go through, I go through. But keep this thing out of it up here that's trying to get me. I'm not letting my mind get me anymore. Anyway, the peculiar thing about that meeting, I never joined that group. Isn't that funny? And I never joined any of the groups that my sponsor belonged to. In those days, I'm not saying it is true now, but the pigeons, we were called pigeons, weren't clones of the sponsors. We didn't do exactly what they did. We used our own facilities to do what we were supposed to do. They were just our friends and our, and our helpers. Anyway, I ended up at a group called the uh, 24th Street Clubhouse, which was a good alcoholic group because it was located on 23rd Street. Uh, this was a place that Bill Wilson had started, a little club, and it wasn't really a club, it was a meeting room, like like uh, Mid-City. It wasn't really a club. And Bill had started this thing, and uh, it was on 24th Street. And they tore it down and built a big complex there, so we moved to 23rd Street. But we still kept the name, old 24th Street Clubhouse. And many, many times, that clubhouse was, as I say, 50 people and 40 of them drunk. And uh, I got out a board of directors, and I got to be the director of the, of the 24th Street Club. And we'd have business meetings, and every business meeting, we, the biggest discussion you ever heard... Was about what are we going to do with these drunks? Well, my thing was just let them go to meetings. You know, in fact, most of the people I sponsor, I take them to meetings. I, I, that's where I got what I got. You know, if I give them what I got up here, they're going to get in deep trouble. But I take them to meetings. Let them listen to these guys and let them. To, if, if some guy's full of so and so, I'll tell them that don't pay attention to that guy. What he's saying makes no sense in this program. That guy makes sense. That guy gal yeah, makes sense. Listen to them. But, you know, take some advice from those guys. Go to meetings. Go to meetings. And, uh, so they, they started a thing about borrowing people from meetings. And I like to share this with you. There was a guy by the name of John. He was, uh, Irish. And, uh, he was a poet. And a bad drunk. Now the guy weighed about 200 pounds and he wasn't, didn't have a belly like this. He was strong, a big guy, muscle guy. And John would come in and we had tables like they have in the back there. And he'd stand up on a table and drop his pants and show himself to everybody in the room. Men and women alike, and he'd say vulgar things to them, and he'd tip over the chairs, and he'd tip over the podium. And uh, he used to hide his bottle in the bathroom, in the tank. Nobody knew it was there, of course, right? Everybody knows it's there. So we'd take it out and dump it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't dump anybody's drink. Let them dump it if they let them drink till they finished. I'm finished. I don't know if you are. I can't make up your mind for you. So they tried to dump his drink out, and he'd get mad. He broke the toilet four or five times. We would had to buy a new toilet and stuff. And he'd smash it all to pieces, the china toilet. And uh, so they barred him, except from one meeting. I had a Saturday night meeting, and John would come to my meeting. And he'd sit there like a baby. Never said a word at my meeting, and they never could understand it. And I used to grin and smile. I never told them a secret. I met John every morning. I gave John a half a buck to buy his morning eye-opener drink. He was very sick every night, and he needed something to open his get going in the morning. And I gave him a half a buck to buy his drink. If they'd have known that, they'd have probably put me out. That's the end of the story as I know it. He came to the meeting and sat there and never got sober. I was here in Phoenix 10 years ago, speaking at a meeting somewhere, and a little gal came up to me and hugged me and tears in her eyes, she said, I want to meet you for so many years. I don't know who she is. I said, have you ever seen me before? She said, no. I said, well, why do you want to meet me? She said, I come from Alaska. And she told me the guy's last name, and John is there, and he's sober five years, and he sends his love. Well. This sucker just works, boys and girls. This thing just works. Don't ask me how. If you ask me, how did you get sober, Bob? I'll tell you, I went to an AA meeting, and something happened. Something miraculous happened. Something astounding happened. And I didn't have anything to do with it. I just showed up. I think the number one ingredient in alcohol so must is love. Because I was loved here and I am loved here, not because I'm a good boy, not because I speak well, not because I work the steps well, not because I've worked them all or half of them, not because I stay sober, just because I'm here. My mom and dad love me, but they love me more if I got a good report card. All my relatives love me, but they love me more if I was a good boy. The people I work for love me more if I did a better job. You just keep loving me more every day just because I show up. Isn't that nice? Isn't that the way it should be? They don't even expect me to stay sober one more day. They don't expect anything. You know, one of the worst things that I've heard done, and I have never done it and I won't do it, a person is missing for four or five days or a week, a newcomer. And they come back to you or call you or come back or you see them and you say, are you still sober yet? None of your damn business. It's their business. They'll tell you if they got a problem. We don't cross-examine anyone in here. We don't have to question them. They don't have to fill anything out. In fact, if you want to quit, there's no place to quit. That's the worst part of it. And if you're here for your first, second, or third meeting, your drinking is finished. Or you may go out and drink again, but it's finished. You'll never drink successfully again as long as you live. We got you now. Because you see, we got we've got twelve steps, and the first step in the twelve steps says "we," and "we" means fellowship, and fellowship fellowship means once you're in, you can't never get out. We got you, we got you in these hands, and we're going to keep you. We'll keep you in our heart, and we'll keep you in our mind, and we'll keep you in our love. And when you're out in the bar, and you're having a drink, you remember what this guy said. Sometimes it stinks out here. I think I'll go back because you're in a fellowship now. The minute you walk in the door, you join, and there's nowhere to quit. You can't quit anymore. You can't resign. You're finished. So you might as well stick it out and stay one day at a time and keep coming back. No place to join, no dues to pay, no fees. I've never been asked my nationality or my religion. Or what I vote or where I work or nothing. I don't know anywhere else you can get. Every halfway house you go to, every treatment program you go, they fill out these papers and they want to know every the whole history. We don't have paper one here. Isn't it fantastic to be part of this? Isn't it fantastic for once in our lives to be part of the solution and not the problem? And to have 150 other groups. I read a list of them today. 150 anonymous groups in America copied us. We must be doing something right. They don't copy losers. They copy winners. And we're winners. And no matter what your problem is, no matter what problem you have today, there's two things that will solve that problem. And I should have told you something before I said this, and then I'll close. Since the day I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, nothing has gotten better in my life. Isn't that a terrible thing to say? The world is going to hell in a handbasket. I got here January the 3rd, 1966, and by the grace of God and the help of Alcoholics Anonymous, I've stayed sober every day since and I never went back out and took a drink. Nothing becoming to me. It's all yours. In fact, my first birthday, I missed it. I had to go on a 12-step call. And when I came back to my birthday, I said to my sponsor, I missed my birthday. He said, it's not yours, it's ours. It was their birthday. It wasn't mine. They gave me the year. But anyway, and I, going off there, I lost my train of thought. Completely. I guess I still have blackouts, even though I'm sober. I guess I can be allowed. But uh, anybody going to give me a hint what I was talking about? Okay, one thing, one thing at a time. Thank you very much, especially Roxanne. I remember her the night Warren spoke. And so I think she was the star of the show instead of Warren. Anyway, uh, one thing that I'm firmly convinced of is that God is in charge, and so we'll forget about it and give it to God. Forget about it and think about God. I'm driving along and somebody cuts me off. And I get—I ask my wife, I get irate in a car. I don't like the, the people, the drivers and the whole system. So I say something nonsensical like, thank God I've got a car. Thank God I wasn't in an accident. Uh, thank God I know how to drive. Thank God I'm not drinking while I'm driving. Uh, thank God i got clothes on. Uh, uh, thank God I'm going to work or coming home or going home. And pretty soon, uh, whoever that jerk was that passed me is gone. I've forgotten about it. God took him away from my life. that's how I forget about it and think about God I just think about the things God has given me and he's doing and I don't have any great prayers you see because I was fortunate enough to be a Baptist minister for for years and uh, gave that up and gave up all them fancy prayers I used to say with it I just challenge God now and the second thing is as I said nothing has gotten any better nothing has gotten any better but my attitude has My attitude has gotten better because of the 12 steps, because of the love, because of the care I've gotten in here. The world can't do anything to me. Like I just said, if if I go home now my house is ransacked, well, I'll buy all new stuff. If the house is burned down, I'll move to another one. I mean, what's the big deal? Lose all my money, I'll go work for some more. I mean, the worst thing that can happen, I'll go on welfare. That's their problem. I mean, there's no big deal. There isn't any big deal. There's nothing they can do to me. So that's my attitude has changed. I was talking to a gal the other night, and she was talking about her husband uh, wasn't paying enough alimony, and she went to court, and that guy was going to pay more alimony, and he didn't want to do it. And I said, well, it'll be all right, even if he doesn't. She says, no, it won't. It won't. Her life isn't going to get any better, unless the alimony gets better, right? Well, why depend on that jerk? I'll depend on this jerk. I'll depend on what I have. I'll make do with what I have, and then if I get me more, I'll share it with you guys. So the attitude has changed. So the letting go and letting God and having a different attitude in our life, that's all there is to it. There isn't much more to it. You see, before I got here, I was a drunk and a bum and a thing to flout. And the world drew a circle and they shut me out. But Alcoholics Anonymous and you gave me the wit and the will to win. For we drew a big circle and we took the whole world in. Thank you very much.